Well, it's good to see you again. Thank you for taking the time to tune in for this. Some of you are listening to the audio so you can study for your Sunday school lesson. And some of you are watching the video that perhaps you were sick or traveling or for whatever reason you couldn't be with your Sunday school class. And I'm so glad that you take the opportunity to keep up with what we're doing. Biblical knowledge is so important and it's good that we learn together and that we grow together and stay in the same flow and I appreciate you doing that so very much. And by the way, for those of you who are Sunday school teachers, thank you for your investment in our church and in our lives. We appreciate you so very much and pray that the Lord blesses you and uh, praying that our Sunday school will grow and that we will not only uh, become more knowledgeable in the things of the Lord, but also that we'll be more faithful in carrying out the Great Commission. And in so doing, we'll be disciple makers and our Sunday school will grow by multiplication. That's what we really are praying for. We're talking out of John 17. We have been uh, during the month of October and we're going to do this in November as well. Out of John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, we've been calling it the greatest prayer ever prayed. And um, as we talk about it, we're going to focus in on verses 9 through 11. I know we've covered those verses, even uh, some of them last week. But I want to look at them from a little different um, aspect this month. And um, the introduction says Christianity is fragile. Things in society are fragile. And the mission that we have is tough. Nobody said it was going to be easy, did they? Jesus said we would have tribulation in this world. And some say that we're not called to be successful. Uh, I heard somebody say that just the other day. They said, well, just remember, God didn't call us to be successful. And I think um, that probably comes with the idea of what I did wasn't all that fruitful and, uh, you know, it was kind of disappointing. And then we console ourselves by saying, well, God didn't call us to be successful. Um, there is an aspect of that that I probably would agree with. Uh, maybe if we're thinking of success as being popular and being well thought of in the world and rich and famous and all of that, I, I might agree with it. But I also want to challenge that thing. God did not call us to be successful. Okay, so what are you saying then? God called us to be failures. God called us to be flops. God called us to, you know, just fizzle out. And I don't see that either. I think the key is we need to redefine what success is. And success, I think, scripturally, is faithfulness. And so if you are faithful, no matter how anything looks or how it uh, appears to be, if you're doing what God has called you to do in the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the word of God, then when you finish and the Lord Jesus would say, well done, good and faithful servant, you're a success. You're a success. I have said um, on several occasions over the years that maybe a Sunday school teacher, they, uh, you know, they don't get too motivated because, well, the class just doesn't seem to be, you know, going anywhere. And they just say, well, I'm only going to have a couple of, you know, 
11-year-old boys show up. But, you know, I don't really have to work all that hard in order to teach. And you're just kind of casual about it, nonchalant. Well, what if one of those boys was John Calvin and the other one was Charles Haddon Spurgeon? Oh, man, now that would be different, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's our problem. We don't really see things through the eyes of God. I remember reading a story one time that Mordecai Ham, a Baptist evangelist, was in North Carolina, and he did a revival meeting, an evangelistic crusade. And uh, when it was all finished that week, he wasn't really all that happy. The numbers just weren't quite where he had hoped and prayed and anticipated they would be. Just a few, few people got saved. And one of them was somebody named William Franklin Graham, Billy Graham. And in other words, the point of that is, maybe in that crusade that just didn't amount to much, the seeds were planted for the evangelization of North America and even the world through Billy Graham. I think that uh, sometimes we don't understand that if we're faithful, that uh, Paul said some water or pardon me, some plant and some water and some bring in the harvest. And we get so excited about the people that bring in the harvest, we forget they couldn't bring in the harvest if the planter didn't do his or her job, if the waterer didn't do his or her job. And when it's all said and done and the harvest is brought in at the end of the age, the planter and the waterer are going to receive an equal share with the harvester. And we tend to think, oh, God's really got his hand on the harvester. Well, God had to have his hand on the whole thing. In fact, Paul put it this way. So he that plants is nothing. And he that waters is nothing. But it's God who gives the increase. In other words, the glory has to go to him. This is a hard job. This is a hard task that we've been called to do. And success is defined not by outcome, not by results, not what other people can see, not by how we feel. It comes by God's evaluation simply, were we faithful? I mean, to be honest, if you were to look at just the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, he wasn't all that successful in terms of numbers and in terms of influence and all of that type of thing. Um, even his own disciples, well, one of them betrayed him and the other ones went and hid and they weren't really all that sure that he had been raised from the dead and all of that. Remember all of those stories? And yet look what happened. We're still talking about him today. His measure of success was simply to come to the Lord and say in John 17 and on the cross, I've accomplished, mission accomplished. I've done, Father, what you wanted me to do. So faithfulness is success. And that's what we want to do. And Jesus is praying about our faithfulness. He's praying for those who will carry on his work. So notice how he prays in such a way that kind of counters our very weaknesses. Not just the disciples who were there, but remember he's praying for all of us who will believe. And he says in verse 9, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, 
But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one, O-N-E, as we are. How does uh, Jesus pray about our success? How does he pray about our faithfulness to accomplish the mission that we have been given? He seems to be pretty um, assured about all of this. He makes that statement about his disciples. Let's think about who they are. People like Peter and uh, people like John and James and others that we don't know nearly as well who are going to scatter after he is arrested. And they're going to hide out. And uh, they're not going to really show their faithfulness. It's not like they're going to be waiting at the tomb on that third day saying, I think this is the day, let's be ready. They're not going to do that. In fact, whenever Jesus appears to them, they're terrified and think that they're seeing a ghost. Uh, not exactly the kind of people you expect to um, really be successful in carrying out the mission. And yet Jesus says about them in this prayer, I am glorified in them. Well, I sure wonder how. Because when I read through the Gospels, I find very, very little that really seems to outwardly glorify the Lord. Maybe Jesus sees something that we don't see. And maybe he knows something, <laughs> tongue in cheek. Maybe he knows something that we don't know about them and about their future. They don't look like much now. But that same Peter that the Lord is going to say, Get thee behind me, Satan, is the same one that's going to preach and 3,000 are going to be saved on the day of Pentecost. Maybe there's more to this story. And maybe your life story and my life story is much the same way. We can see our failures. We can see where we uh, don't live up to potential. We can see where we kind of fumble the ball. We can see where we don't really get it. We don't really do what we're supposed to do. But maybe as Jesus looks at that and he says, but I'm glorified in them, maybe it's because we don't really see the potential of what we do and how it is going to carry on uh, after we're gone. And maybe we also don't understand that as long as we're breathing, as long as we are still uh, living, maybe God is still doing things in and through us that we would never anticipate and you never know what tomorrow's going to um going to hold do you uh, it may be that right now that things are just kind of it's a it's a tough sled but it may be that tomorrow everything changes we just don't really know uh, about all of that and notice how jesus when he prays about something the first thing i want to make note of is he is the one who turns vulnerability, I can say that, vulnerabilities <laughs> into strengths. Easy for me to say, right? Turning vulnerabilities into strengths. And he says in verse 9, I pray for them, I do not pray for the world. Notice that contrast. But I pray for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
Now, um, as we think about those words, we may just kind of go, yeah, yeah, I kind of know that. We'll, we'll stop and think just a little bit about what he is really saying. There's a difference between us and the world. And Jesus doesn't look at you and look at the world and say, well, boy, you know, if, if, uh, if only, you know, you could be like them, then I could really do something with you. Uh, the Lord is not looking around at his team, so to speak. Let's call it a team. And, and looking over at the devil's team and saying, man, I wish I had that guy as captain of my team. See, he's not looking saying that, uh, boy, if I could only have some Bill Gates, you know, if I could only have some um, Donald Trumps on my team, if I could only have some, I don't know, Brad Pitts or somebody like that, if I could only have those kind of people and, and if I could have those on my team, boy, I could really do something, but I'll, I'll make do. I'll do the best with what I've got. I'll take lemons and make lemonade and uh, maybe we can, you know, eke out a victory at the last moment on all of this. Do, do you get the idea when you read this that Jesus is not saying that Peter and Bartholomew and, you know, uh, Simon the Zealot and all of that, you know, they're just kind of second or third tier people they're not really the the best but this is all he's got do you, do you get that idea that maybe Jesus is disappointed I don't I look and when I read those verses and I think about this ragtag group of fishermen and political zealots and tax collectors and you know people like that that Jesus is very pleased with what the father has given him that Jesus is looking at them and he is seeing them and, and he's not stupid. He knows their weaknesses and he knows their sin. He knows all of that. And yet he's not focused on that. I am glorified in them. They are yours. You have given them to me. Think about what he is saying there. When we look at the world, we look at the world and we tend to think they've got everything going for them. They're the brightest, the best. They look good. They smell good. Everybody loves them. They've got influence. I mean, good night. Look how many followers they have on Instagram. And look how uh, many retweets that they get. And look at all of the money that they have. I mean, oh my goodness. They, they just endorse a product and millions of dollars come in or they act in a movie and millions of dollars come in oh we can't even scare up anything close to that we we don't have anything uh, that compares with them we don't look as good as they do look how good they look and we can't sing as well as they can I mean Christian musicians try and try and try and try and try to match what the world does but it it, it never really does what's going on how can we reach the world for Christ? How can we carry out the Great Commission? I mean, if you think about the world, they've got political clout and power. They've got money. They've got the media behind them. And who are we? I mean, it's just really just little old us. You know, sometimes people sing and they say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You know, I like that line except for one word in it. I don't like the word just. I feel like that we take that and we go, oh, you got to remember, I'm just a sinner. 
And God never puts that. He says, no, you're not just a sinner. You are a saint. You are called of God. You are chosen of God. You're indwelt by God. You are empowered by God. You are commissioned by God. You were placed here by God. I mean, God puts something different on us than we really see. And so Jesus, as he is praying here and drawing this contrast, he's not saying, oh, Father, please help my puny little followers. Is this the best we can do? He talks about them being chosen out of the world, being a gift from the Father to himself that he receives gladly. And he talks about his glory being in these followers that the world, well, the world would never choose us. The world would never be all that impressed by us. And yet, is there anything in the world that has lasted and has been as powerful as the church and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for these well over 2,000 years? Uh, it had every potential for failure, every potential to fizzle, but it didn't. And here's the key, because it's not based on us. It's not based on our talent. It's not based upon our looks. It's not based upon our ability. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And that rock that he built it on, he's talking about building it upon himself. And upon that confession that Peter had made that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so we stand here, not very powerful, not very mighty in terms of the way the world would look at us. And we see that as a vulnerability. How can we do this? And God says, that's your greatest strength, your humility, your submission to me. And he does great things. We have the presence, the power, and we have the promises of God. 1 Corinthians 1.27 but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And that's exactly what he's doing. Praise God. Hallelujah for that. That means that uh, we are far better off than we think we are. Let's act like it. Let's think like it. Let's pray like it. Let's live like it. And let's expect it, folks. Number two, Jesus talks about carrying on the work of Jesus. Now, how am I supposed to carry on the work of the Son of God? Oh, my goodness. Man, I'm in trouble. I mean, I've worked really hard at raising people from the dead, and I just haven't perfected that yet. Jesus goes to a cemetery, and he says, Lazarus, come forth, and here comes Lazarus out of the tomb. I hadn't gotten that good at it yet. Have you? In fact... If Jesus had not qualified it by saying, Lazarus, come forth, if he had just said, come forth, every dead person in the cemetery would come. Now, how am I supposed to match up with that? You know, um, I've been practicing my leper healing skills lately and um, not, not doing so good. I'm having trouble finding lepers. And uh, not only that, when I do find them, I don't really have a temple to send them to to be verified by the priest. I don't know quite how to do that. Now, how am I supposed to match up with what Jesus did? Um, 
I've been uh, trying to work on my blind healing skills, but I can't even make that work for myself with my eye problems and that kind of thing. How am I supposed to do this kind of stuff? Jesus is sending us out in the world to carry on. What is he thinking? I mean, I'm not the son of God, neither are you. We don't have that kind of power. Have you ever matched wits with a good Pharisee lately? Uh, sometimes I, I kind of, my brain locks up and I don't really think like I ought to think until later on. Um, I remember somebody uh, talking about at sales, you know, they said, I'm on the phone with somebody trying to convince somebody to buy my product and I have to, you know, kind of make an argument for my case. Said, my problem is my best arguments for my product come after I've hung up the phone. You ever do that? And yet Jesus, he could talk to people and there he was, just a common person, somebody from Galilee of all places, and he could talk to the intellectual elites of his day. He could say one thing and all of a sudden they are speechless. I hadn't pulled that off very well lately. And so I guess probably I ought not expect much out of myself and probably ought not try to witness. And you probably shouldn't either because there's no way we could pull this off because we are not Jesus. You ever heard anybody act like that, think like that, or talk like that? You know, I'm... Just a sinner saved by grace about all I've got. I'm barely hanging on. And yet Jesus says something like this. And all mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. Now I'm no longer in the world. But these are in the world. Yeah, you have a feeling maybe the almighty, all-knowing Son of God is actually on top of this? That he actually knows what he's doing? That he's not in heaven wringing his hands saying, I hope they can do it, I hope they can do it, crossing his fingers. You know, you, you, you have the idea maybe Jesus has a plan and that you and I are included in the plan. You, you have an idea here that the fact that we belong to him and we also belong to the Father in all of this and we're the ones that are left behind, maybe, maybe there's more to this than we think. See, I want you to understand that Jesus, I've heard people all my life talk about Jesus. Oh, he was the first martyr. No, he wasn't. He was not a martyr. He's the redeemer. He's a victor in all of this, not a victim of circumstances. And it was his plan, his plan to leave the earth. And um, so that he could send us the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so that he could empower us with his power and give us his peace and his love and his joy. So that he could actually live through sinners like us. And Jesus actually said that it's going to be better this way. Have you missed this? John chapter 14, 12. Truly, truly. I, it sounds more spiritual than King James. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Greater works? When did Peter do greater works than Jesus? How many lepers? Let's keep score. Let's tally up how many lepers Peter healed. He's going to come up far short, isn't he? How many people did he raise from the dead? I don't know of any that he raised from the dead. 
He's going to do what he did and greater works than he did. Well, let me ask you this. How many times did Jesus preach and 3,000 were saved? If you're going to put things in perspective, let's think now. What is the greater miracle? Healing a leper who's going to get sick and die again? Raising somebody from the dead who's going to get sick and die again? Or preaching the eternal, all-sufficient, powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection as full payment for sin. And the Holy Spirit moves upon that crowd. And in Acts chapter, chapter 2, it says they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter told them, repent. And then be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. I'm telling you, that's a great thing. And I'm sure at that point, the Lord Jesus was cheering Peter on as he was thinking about how great that was, that now his name is being proclaimed. And right there in Jerusalem, where not too many days before they had said, let his blood be on us and our children, let him be crucified, now people are repenting and coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And they're being one to Christ through the testimony and the preaching of the denier. Man, that's amazing. And I think about that and how God works through us if we would simply yield to him and believe what he said. Number three, staying faithful under pressure. He prays about that. You ever get under pressure and you just quit? You ever get under pressure and you just stop? I mean, maybe you did that. Maybe you were playing an instrument one time and you were getting ready to... Uh, play for a contest and the pressure got too much you just said oh I don't want to do this anymore maybe you went out for football and by the time you got through with two a days you said oh this isn't for me you just couldn't handle the pressure maybe you were in the military and you didn't know how you were going to bear up under that drill sergeant yelling at you and doing those kind of things I mean all kinds of situations where we get under pressure and we quit or at least we want to quit or we figure out something else to do well we can't do that with the cause of Christ we are in the pressure cooker of the world. And Jesus said, keep through your name those you have given me. Keep through your name those whom you have given me. Keep. Why would he need to keep us? Because you and I would get out of this if we could. You and I would run from this if we could. You and I would be the next denier if we could get away with it. You and I would just hide and be like a spiritual turtle, just withdraw and not really tell anybody who we are or who the Lord is or anything like that. That's what we would do if we left it up to us. But Jesus has other plans and other ideas. The Greek word for tribulation is the word, it's flipsis. And it means pressure. You know what tribulation is? Sometimes it's having your head cut off or being put in prison or something like that. Sometimes it's just the pressure that the enemy and the flesh and the world brings to bear against us. We're walking upstream, by the way. We're walking against the flow. And it's just uncomfortable and they will put the pressure. Boy, they know how to do a full court press, don't they? Well, Jesus is praying that the Lord, that the Father would keep us, that we would bear up under the pressure, that we wouldn't quit, that we wouldn't run away from it, that we wouldn't back down from it. And when the pressure is on, who is it that keeps us saved and on track? Well, it's not you. 
Because you'd lose your salvation if you could. You would and I would. But it's God. Is God's agenda dependent upon the whims of a of fickle humanity, including us? Well, we can be hot and on fire for Jesus when somebody's preaching and uh, when they're singing and when we're in the right atmosphere, right? We've been there. Boy, you cool off as soon as you walk out of the doors many times. Or the first time you try to witness to somebody like your hero did and you get somebody shutting you down, spitting in your face and rejecting you and then you say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's what Jesus is praying against. We're a bunch of lazy quitters. And he is praying that the Father will keep us. That's a mark of salvation that we persevere even when we're the ones that mess up. We just can't quit. And number four... He prays for unity of true believers that they may be one as we are. Now, how hard is this for the Lord to unify people like us? I mean, we're different races. We're different classes of people. We're different nationalities of people. We speak different languages. We have different political backgrounds. We have different uh, parents. You know, all of those kind of things. And yet he prayed that we would be one. You think about uh, all of the things that cause us to uh, be different. You know, even in our age, we even have a lot of technology that the early church and a lot of believers didn't have, and we think that makes us different, and yet we're still the same. And depravity comes out whether you text it, whether you tweet it, or whether you draw a nasty picture on a cave doesn't really matter it's always there and selfishness and greed and all of those things are there and how in the world are we ever going to get together because we all think that our culture is the best why can't everybody be like us and value what I value and think what I think and speak in a way that I can understand it that's and yet the Lord prays for all of us to be one some of us are just smarter than others aren't we Well, think about it. He's praying that we would be one like the Trinity, like God is. The Father never is jealous of the Spirit. The Spirit is never jealous of the Son. They never contradict each other. They work together in perfect harmony, co-equal in nature and attributes. They're one in their purpose. They're one in the plan that they execute. And they're one in perseverance. They just don't quit. Boy, what if that could happen for Graceway Baptist Church? What if all of us could be one in purpose, following the right plan, and persevering all the way through? We just would never give up. What if all true believers all across America, as we go to vote on Tuesday, what if we could do that? What if we could have the right purpose and follow the plan and persevere in all of this, regardless of who gets elected? What if we just simply had the idea that all around the world, everyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, what if we really joined hands and hearts with them, prayed for them and loved them, stood together with them, even if they're in a different country under a different regime, under persecution or poverty or whatever it might be? What if that really, really happened? That's what Jesus is praying for. Can you see why the devil attacks so hard to get us 
to veer off of the purpose of God and live for ourselves, to use a different plan, to have an alternate, to do something different than what the Lord said that we should do. And he always works on us to get us to quit. What if we really had that unity? That's what Jesus prayed for, and that's what he is working on us to do. Now, that's not an ecumenical, let's just hold hands with every bozo and every nut that's out there and every heretic that's out there. No, that's not what he means. But with true believers, purpose, plan, perseverance. That's where we ought to be unified. So Jesus prays about real problems in real people's lives in a real world. These are real and we face them all the time. Sometimes we do better than other times. But the blood of Jesus covers all of that. He's already forgiven us of all of that. And he's already factored in our stupidity and his sovereignty, right? And we should as well. Is your prayer life real and honest when you think about other people? You know, sometimes I think we pray, Oh Lord, bless Johnny, because that's easier than laboring in prayer over his addiction to pornography. I think sometimes we pray with a just, oh, bless Sally over here, because that's easier than praying about her drug addiction. I think sometimes we like to pray about maybe our own little circle and our own family and all of that, because that's easier than praying about people that are on the streets and people that are rioting and people that are voting differently than we vote. And we get mad and we put Facebook memes out there and we think that's going Any, to... Anybody ever had anybody converted to your point of view by a Facebook meme? What are we doing some of this stuff for? What are we trying to accomplish? But has anybody ever been saved by the good news of Jesus Christ? And you know that they have. And that's where the power is. And we ought to be praying about that because there's a harvest there. And Jesus told us, don't say six months and then the harvest. It's ready to be harvested. Let that sink in, Calvinist. It's ready to be harvested. So what did he say to pray for? Pray that there would be laborers sent into the harvest. That's where you're supposed to be and I am supposed to be. And that answers the prayer of Jesus in John 17 and what he is praying for us now. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful prayer. What a wonderful word from God. And may the Lord bless you as you are the answer to his prayer in the way that you live in the real world, in your everyday life, as he transforms you into someone that he can use for his glory. Go for it.